Encore, in association with the Dean Crow Theatre and Arts Centre Athlone, our bright and airy AIB gallery and cosy theatre bar can cater for smaller private events too. Your theatre, our home, deancrowtheatre.com. Tales and Tunes of the Towpath, possibly the most beautifully titled summer festival that you'll attend this year. On Goethe Morbis, the famine through the eyes of a fourth generation American retired NATO official and a Westmeath writer's crime novel set in a village just like the one you live in. Just some of what's to come on Encore tonight. You're welcome to Midlands 103's dedicated arts show with the best of what's happening in the arts in Leash, Offaly and Westmeath every Thursday night between 7 and 8 o'clock. Tonight, Noel O'Farrell is the founder of Tales and Tunes of the Towpath, which is a gorgeous name for a summer music festival. It happens on Sunday, the 26th of June, at a couple of locations on the Grand Canal from Coolnahay to Nanny Quinn's. Athlone Little Theatre are bringing a free theatrical performance to the stage. It's an epic poem called On Goethe Biss and it is written by Thomas Mylan, a retired NATO official who is American, a fourth generation Irishman, um, living now in Paris. But he grew up on the stories of the famine and his Irish family who had to leave, of course, to survive. Joe McCarrick is directing what is an extraordinary um, and moving tale, a once-off dramatic experience, the staged reading of an epic poem. And we'll also be chatting to Liza Costello and her new book is called Crookedwood and it bears no relation to the Westmeath village of the same name, but it is a chilling tale of some of the intrigues that could possibly happen in a small village. We start tonight with some music, an original piece called Piper's Boreen, written and performed by Noel O'Farrell. And I'll let him introduce it. Fly boats used to leave Dublin and come down and collect uh, their cargo of people, uh, of people, human beings, uh, and bring them to the big boats uh, at Dublin Harbour, a uh, Dublin dock to bring them on then to Liverpool to sail around the world. There was a lot of Irish people uh, obviously in those um, ships our ancestors our family if you like in inverted commas and the flyboats no longer sail thankfully but people still go around the world uh, for whatever reasons uh, some necessary some not Um, but the flyboats don't sail anymore they came to Piper's Boring and the local Piper who lived at the bottom of the Boring used to play them off uh, with a song on the pipes with a tune on the pipes. Uh, Piper's Boring, my composition, is uh, a tune from the towpath. Uh, and I hope everybody likes it and shares it. And that's Piper's Boring, written and performed by Noel O'Farrell for the Tales and Tunes of the Towpath Festival, which we'll find out a little bit more about in just a few minutes. Encore, in association with the Dean Crow Theatre and Arts Centre Athlone. Our bright and airy AIB gallery and cosy theatre bar can cater for smaller private events too. Your theatre, our home, deancrowtheatre.com. You're listening to Encore on Midlands 103 and still to come on the programme this evening, Lisa Costello tells us about her crime novel, called Crookedwood, which, as I said earlier on, bears no relation to the village of the same name in County Westmeath. And I'll also be talking to Joe McCarrick about a really unusual performance that's taking place this weekend, a staged reading of an epic poem. 
Noel O'Farrell. Well, it is a brave man who takes on the production of a brand new music and arts festival and runs it over a single day in two separate locations. But that is exactly what Noel O'Farrell has done. He is one of the organisers of the Tales and Tunes of the Towpath Festival. And he's been telling me a little bit, first of all, about the inspiration for it. All my life I've walked the canal. All my life it's been a presence in in our lives as a family. Um, And from a very, very young age, I have great memories of... of, uh, been brought up there with my dad and, and you know, running up alongside it and, and the stories that were told from it, but always been aware acutely of the connection between where the canal originated and where it went to because uh, my mother's family would have been uh, in Dublin and uh, quite near it in Drumcondra. Um, so there would have been a connection that we would have been told. Well, if, you, if, if we if we build a raft and we get on the canal <laughs> within the few within a few hours, we can be in Nana's house for tea. <laughs> we built a raft once or twice, but we never got any further than five yards. Uh, but but also being made acutely aware of where that canal went from Dublin through the centre uh, of of the Midlands and Mead and Kildare, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then entered the Shannon at uh, Clondra. Equally, we were brought up with the stories about the Grand Canal because my, my, my dad's family were Kildare people. So, so we crossed the, cana- the Grand Canal going into Kildare uh, and, um, yeah, we're always told about the canal. Now, where the love of the possibility, perhaps, was, that's an idea that we always used to speak about, myself and Martina, you know, that's my wife. Um, what if maybe we were going for a stroll down the canal, uh, the way you do, and listening to the sounds that you listen to, uh, and perhaps uh, the tones of maybe I don't know traditional air or a, a baroque air or somebody telling a story was was uh, was going to come uh, around the corner at you. Uh, what would it feel like, and what would it be like? And that really kind of was always there. I always thought about that, and we always spoke about that. On, at the lockdown period, then we started to meet more and more people. Mm. So more and more people started to gather on the canal, to, to, to walk by it, to imbibe what it has to offer, which is a beautiful space of hundreds of years there. It's all there for the last hundreds of years. Um, and there seemed to be a different kind of energy came into it. And the councils, of course, then in, in both the Grand and the Royal put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into upgrading the footpaths. You know, you, can, you no longer had to stumble and fall. And fall. Uh, the, there are still a couple of rugged enough areas there. The High Line, just around the corner from us here in, in Mullingar, is, has no path, but it has the most beautiful walks and the most beautiful plants and flowers and and natural music if you like there <laughs> to call it something mm-hmm. the, the the sounds and the tones of of nature which was what we wanted to do with this idea to we didn't want to take away from that so in other words there there would be no big descending of massive sound hire trucks and <laughs> 
and uh, scaffolding and trussing and yeah, all of that sort yeah, of thing yeah. that goes along with the festivals that we would know of. This this is altogether a more calm, ambient, uh, laid back, gentle affair. And I think they, those adjectives could be applied to the canal itself, the canal system itself. How would you describe it? It's, yeah. it's four miles an hour of 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 quietness, of calmness, of yeah. serenity. Yeah. Tell me about how you go to curate a festival then built around the canal. Okay, the, the, another good question. Uh, yeah, then you have to go through your black book, if you like. And, and, and my, my contacts in, in the music world and through radio as well um, are many. And, and I have a, equally as many great friends in pretty hardcore rock bands <laughs> and, and as I do who play acoustic music and who yeah. tell stories and who write poetry and, and recite poetry and, and well, one of the the, the the artists on the day is Anita O'Brien and I've worked with Anita a few times she she did a, a lovely festival with us and a Halloween festival with us on the, uh, the shores of Loch Ennell where she played harp um, dressed beautifully as a vampire because it was Christmas but or because it was Halloween. Um, and I've worked with her on a, a, a small show that we did a few years ago called Fado, which was a presentation of Irish original uh, story and song. Yeah. Um, she's a harpist, and she's a beautiful harpist. Now, if you and I were to go for a stroll down the canal, and we were turning a corner, and I heard the sounds of a Celtic harp coming from nearby I'd go well I'd go and explore this further and yes, <laughs> yeah. see what this is uh, Eva Coyle who's a singer uh, Eva's one of the artists on the day as well she's just released uh, a new album yeah. Just yeah you've had guest of yours I have no doubt about that she, and a beautiful beautiful singer and writer she is too County Westmead lady uh, Paul Timoney the County Westmead storyteller I'm sure you've had Paul oh, as well Paul yes I have some of Paul's how, artwork how, on my walls yeah how well, you know something, Claire, that's a lovely thing to say because uh, to me, Paul Timoney is one of the... I've worked with Paul many, many times um, and he's one of the great... I just love him. I love, yeah. <laughs> I love Paul Timoney. Um, uh, and I'm going to do some original songs myself uh, and play them acoustically Um and we will have poetry. We will have. Uh, we, there's there's a couple of bits and pieces coming in as we speak, but yeah. there, there's the the foundation of it. Fantastic. Coco Mello, a, a beautiful young young band just starting off, uh, being inspired by the music of Django Reinhardt. Not that uh, common uh, a thing to say you're you're, you're influenced no. by nowadays, especially with with twenty somethings. Um, but you know. That it, I hope that describes the kind of feeling about this, and it's more a feeling than it is an actual. Oh, you know, we want to put big names. Do you remember years ago? You might, you might remember. Not there was a festival in Cork called Lissard. You, you don't remember the, the, no, the Lissard festival? No, I don't. Well, Lissard was an interesting festival. It's the only way I can describe it, because insofar as they didn't use big PA systems, people like Elvis Costello would come, uh, which is a name that your your listeners might know. People like Elvis Costello might come and just sit down reading the works of uh, Paddy Kavanagh, for example. Okay. Um, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, Liam O'Mwainley could be playing the hurdy-gurdy music. Not what they're <laughs> normally associated yeah, with. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but this is the thing about the canal and, and its presence in our lives, Claire. In, 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 on the Grand and on the Royal, it, it, it's a thing that goes through our lands, if you like. It comes from Dublin and, and, and it goes into Shannon Estuary. So effectively, it dissects the country. <laughs> so... so and and there's one in Offaly and there's one yeah. through Westmead. So mm. effectively, that's an island situation that's is, going on yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, no, not, I, I only mean that. I, I mean I know that. What you in, mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, in yeah. that, it, it's travelled through our centres are very slow and very quiet and very calm um, and serene. So, so I think that's what we try to tap into, that if we try to complement that in some way with artistic performances, creative performances, then well, we have, you know, maybe perhaps stumbled upon something. OK, we start at Coolnahay at noon mm. and yeah. all the action is around Coolnahay for a while. Then you move on at half past three to Nanny Quinn's. Yes. That's the way it works. Lock, so lock number twenty. Six to lock number eighteen, if you want to follow the lock. And I think the the reason that that was suggested was um, that that it was kind of some people like to walk the canal long distances, if you like. So so in other words, there are hikers and walkers and bikers on it all the time. Uh, and and what we thought of was that maybe they could stop at Coolnahe, having come from Balnacargi or, or Abbey Shrule or somewhere, and say, right, we'll we'll enjoy this for a while, and now we'll push on. Uh, and by the time they, you know, if they stop off in Mullingar or wherever, and they can go and have a coffee, or they can have a coffee in Coolnahe, then they get to Nanny Quinns and to be able to enjoy it again, or to be able to enjoy another performance. And that was the idea. And, and uh, you know, people people said, interesting. <laughs> not the way it's normally done. Could you not have done it on two days? Well, you know, we're dipping our toe in here. To, I, I, I think it's the best way to describe it. And we'll see how this inaugural one goes. And then we'll, we'll take it from there. There's a lot of really lovely comments and interest in it thus far. Uh, and and I, I think everybody is getting what you and I just we're talking about there that that it's it's a particular feeling it's not something that you you want to foist upon an area because people enjoy the canal quietly themselves for their own different reasons and the natural habitat that exists there birds bees everything exists quietly um so i think that was what we suggested we were trying to do is just try and bring it some little taste of a creative performance within that realm uh, graciously and quietly and see how we get on and, and you know we'll, we'll leave quiet, as quietly as we went in Tales and Tunes of the Towpath starts on the canal at Coolnahay at 12 o'clock on Sunday and moves on at around half past three to Nanny Quinn's and it sounds like an absolutely wonderful event After the break Lisa Costello originally from Moat and now living again in Moat after a stint in Dublin has written her second novel. It's called Crookedwood. She tells us about it after the break here on Encore on Midlands 103. On 
Encore, in association with the Dean Crow Theatre and Arts Centre Athlone. Our bright and airy AIB gallery and cosy theatre bar can cater for smaller private events too. Your theatre, our home. DeanCrowTheatre.com Still to come on the show this evening, I will be chatting to Joe McCarrick, who is directing the staged reading of a brand new epic poem about the famine. So new and so different, I suppose, in its interpretation. Um, coming from um, a man who has lived in America for very much of his life and France most recently and he's learned the stories of the famine going back through generations in his family that he has titled the poem not just on Goethe Moor but on Goethe Moor Bis and that connects, it's a French word and it connects to the the second version if you like of the story. That's all still to come on the programme but for now uh, I am joined on the line by Lisa Costello and Lisa is a Westmeath based writer. She has just written her second novel and when I was talking to her recently uh, I had what for me was an interesting question to begin with. How do you close the door on your house when you go in at night Lisa when you've when you've written the estate and you've written Crooked Wood do houses not terrify you? They don't at all actually um, not real ones my one in real life, touch wood, I should say, but um, I actually live in the house I grew up in. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned that to you the last time, but I um, I grew up in Moat and moved to Dublin. And a few years ago, actually just the year before the pandemic started, we, my husband and I and our two kids moved back to the house I grew up in, which is like a, a 70s bungalow, you know, outside the town on a little boring. Um, so I suppose for that reason, I probably feel very safe at home, actually, despite what goes on in my um, made-up houses, my yes. novels. You just want everybody else to be terrified in their beds. And Everyone ter- else can be terrified, <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, tell us uh, about Crooked Wood. Set the scene for us, not to be confused with anywhere else in Westmeath named Crooked Wood. It's important to point that out, yeah. I mean, I should probably mention, I my sister lives in Mullingar and I, the many times I've visited her over the years, I drive through a, a roundabout that has a signpost on it for Crooked Wood, the act, the real Crooked Wood, you know, the village there north of Bullingar. Um, and I'd never been in, in the real Crooked Wood, but it's a, I think it's a beautiful name. It's very evocative. You know, it's very fairy tale like So it's stuck in my head. And sometimes when something sticks in your head, the only way you get it out is by writing it, I find, you know. So, um, but my Crooked Wood is a, is a completely fictional town. It's probably an amalgam of towns like Moat and Kinnegad, you know, kind of bigger midlands towns as opposed to a village. Um, and definitely nothing to do with the the real place. Um, it's about a young woman who moved away from home and went up to Dublin and um, got sidelined from her degree in agricultural science and developed a career in, in a kitchen, in a fine dining kitchen and showed a real passion and a real gift there. Um, but meanwhile, things are sort of stirring at home. She's down home. The narrative starts when she's down home to um, mm. help her mother um, with the final stages of selling off the family farm. Her mother does not want to sell the family farm. Her um, uh, Sarah's father died when she was young, and the mother is very strongly emotional attachments to the farm. Mm. So she's putting a lot of pressure on Sarah to give up the career in 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 Dublin and the cooking career, which she she's very dismissive of. She, re- she really so, is peeling spuds he, in a fancy kitchen. Yeah, yeah, ex- I know exactly, exactly. But I think because I think Nancy is actually a decent woman, Sarah's mother, and she's an intelligent woman, and she loves Sarah. But um, one of the things hurt, I'm kind of interested she? in She's in really um, Crooked, yeah, exactly. Like, because one of the things I'm interested in is the way I think people we we have a great capacity for seeing what we want to see and not seeing what we don't want to see. You know, 
um, I don't mean like repressed memories kind of territory. I just mean general day to day. We're all very good at, we all like to think of ourselves as a good guy and we mean to be the good guy. But um, Nancy's actually a very destructive influence on Sarah and she's posing a real danger to Sarah's sense of independence and her future, you know, and without realising it. And Sarah herself doesn't realise she's kind of on this knife knife edge. She's actually very close to capitulating to Nancy when she goes home and ends up walking down the backfield and into the woods neighbouring or bordering the farm. And then she encounters something that was meant for no one's eyes. And it's actually kind of she's kind of knocked accidentally against a very, you know, sinister development that's happened in the town and thus finds herself dragged into a kind of a dark conspiracy. Um, that she she does not understand, and so the reader does not understand until the very end of the novel. So I yeah. better say no more. No, say no more. But I I think what you said there about um, things not being what they appear to be. It, it's fair to say that that it's it's hard to tell, which is the way it should be, obviously, in a in a in a crime novel, uh, who the characters are, who are not really, really the people they yes. pretend to be. Um, people are very deceptive. I think they are. I think they're even deceptive of themselves, you know, and I don't just say them. I mean, I'm sure I'm deceptive of myself. I think we're all a bit like that, you know. Sometimes I think you need to be to survive, you know, because life life is hard and it's a serious business. Um, so I think, yeah, you're right. That's, that's the real territory you want to be in for a psychological thriller because a mm. lot of what the reader is going to, the thing that's being sold there on screen or in a book is this feeling of dread, this feeling of there's something lurking in the shadows, but you can't quite make it out, you know. So so I think to try to tap into that, how, you know, nobody's quite what they seem is um, is is kind of, it's very relevant, I suppose, to the genre, you know, that that, that kind of creates that. It's all about the atmosphere and the mood, you know, like like if you think of the old Hitchcock films, you know, it's mm. it's very much about that creepy feeling unsettled feeling you have in every scene you know um, as much as it is about what the plot is about and it's as much about reputations and con- conceptions mm. and preconceptions that people have about each other sometimes from a very long time ago and and how people are able to tell lies uh, yes. to people about other people um, it's very it's a very intricately woven web of truth and lies that she has to negotiate with very few skills really yeah no that's a really nice way of putting it thank you I mean yeah I think that I think it's interesting how we can lie to ourselves and to each other and how sometimes when someone is lying to someone they almost believe it you know like the, the character uh, Niall or Neil he's he's very um he sees himself as a good guy and he's he's coming up with this big development off the motorway there. It's in the middle of the Celtic Tiger that it's set, you know, so he thinks he's doing a great thing for the town with business and employment. But really what's motivating him is greed, you know, like he's greedy for the wealth and he's greedy for a better social status, for kind of reclaiming his life, for outdoing his older brother. Um, but he doesn't see that when he looks in the mirror. He, he sees the good stuff, you know, so so he can lie to himself and, and justify not being completely honest to others as well if he needs to. And because he can lie to himself, he and other characters can also be very gullible. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I think we're gullible when somebody's saying what we want to to hear. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I think Joe, her uncle, is the only character there's a bit of... Not honesty, but there's honesty in her conversations with Nancy sometimes too, but I think there is this sort of 
because Joe has his own pain that he's had to deal with and his own secrets, I think then he can, he, he comes with a hard-earned wisdom, Joe, you know, so he can, um, there's none of that with him. He kind of cuts through it a bit. Yeah, and because Nancy has her has her own issues, that fabulous scene, there's a terrific scene where um, um, Sarah comes home and finds her smoking. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> which I just thought was, I thought that was so well done. That, uh, Thank there's you. A, there's a whole... Oh, there's just layers of stuff going on there in that woman, isn't there? Oh, there is. Yeah, I mean, I I like Nancy, no, but she's terrible. <laughs> you know, she's like, um, and she, I feel like one thing I wanted to kind of tap into as well. Like, I mean, Sarah grew up in the time I grew up in. You know, she would have gone to school in kind of late nineties Ireland, and the church still had a strong influence then, and on on, on Sarah's parents that. Like Sarah, Nancy was very kind of almost damaged by the message, the church, the very misogynistic message that would have come from the church about um, a woman's place and a woman's body. I mean, I remember being in secondary school and one of the nuns who taught us, who was a nice woman, you know, but she she must have got the short straw in the convent because she had to give us this talk about female bodies and our bodies changing in adolescence. And I remember noticing her hands were actually shaking, you know, when she was doing this. I, I think it's an awful sin to use a religious word that like women grew up with not being at home with their own bodies you know and I think Nancy has a lot of mm-hmm. sort of um in a like guilt that she shouldn't feel just and and shame around the you know the subject of sex and and her body and, and 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 she passes that on then to Sarah and hasn't been able to kind of be there for Sarah and those issues as Sarah was growing up. Uh, it's interesting that Sarah is she is the protagonist but she mm. is she is not the only very well fleshed out, very well drawn character with a lot going on in their past, with a lot of elements to their lives. The way you know you can sometimes find in psychological thrillers. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I find it I find it really interesting trying to make real characters and then adhere to the conventions of the genre. You know, because it is a challenge. You know, you don't want one dimensional characters, but at the same time, you have to meet the demands of the genre you know so it's um it's, it's it's interesting territory i love writing genre fiction like this like the psychological thriller genre because because it's a challenge you know that kind of way like um mm. I, I would definitely want to stick with it um rather than you know trying to write a literary novel for like a purely literary novel for example because i think when you're trying to do the two things they kind of two different things at the same time it sort of rubs up it's like I, it reminds me of like a, a poet trying to write a sonnet if, if you're banging up against the rules then something gets created out of that I don't know if that makes any sense there it or does not, it does absolutely yeah and the 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 opening couple of pages I, I when I when I started I said to myself oh this reads as a very it, it's I won't say it's very literary because I know you're 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 saying that you're very much of the genre fiction field but it's a really literary Beautiful description and setup. Oh, thank you. At the start. Oh, thank you. That yeah. means a lot. No, thanks. I mean, because I, as a reader, I read a lot of literary stuff, and I wouldn't write if I wasn't interested in language. You know, you do want the language to be fresh, or you know, um, so so I am trying to do that at the same time as the other thing. You know, so so that's brilliant to hear. <laughs> that's music to hear. Thank you. Um, can I ask you talk about growing up in the in the late nineties? Are are you mm. are you afflicted by memories of the boom and the bust? You know, when I just when I put these two books side by side and, and I have them here in front of me, when I put them side by side, I'm saying, hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, I know both characters were affected by what I was affected. I mean, I think with the boom and bust, I was I 
Um, I bought an apartment in Dublin in what turned out to probably be the worst month in the history of the Irish state to buy a property. Like it literally, uh, it was within a couple, within just over a year, it was worth, the market value was less than half of what I paid for it. So that mm. is like a shock to the system when something like that happens, you know. Um, and of course, that's part of the reason why we moved home. Um, I mean, also the Dublin market at the moment is insane. But um, I mean, I got myself out of that situation to a degree and I've, I've been very lucky. But when something like that happens to you when you're relatively young, it it, it wakes you up, you know. It, you're, you know, and it, it kind of got me wise to how easily someone's life can be destroyed, you know, by these kind of market factors, you know, that, that like, has nothing to do with the person. But... Um, yeah, that was a that was a terrifying experience, you know, and it just the, the value kept dropping and dropping and dropping. And the machinations of people, property, and power. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that's another theme in Crookedwood is um we see it in um, there's a fantastic book called Atlas of the Irish Rural Landscape, and anyone with an interest in our rural landscape and how it's changed over the centuries should get this book. It's like I mean it's kind of a bible for a fiction writer based in the Midlands, you know, in, in rural Ireland, but it's um. One thing that it really woke me up to like, is how much, um, you know, when we talk about the Celtic Tiger um, and all the damage that was done and the property bubble um, and it bursting, we always blame the developers and the banks for lending all the money. But, like, none of that would have happened if um, we had perfectly good planning guidelines, but they weren't enforced. If they had been enforced, the banks could have lent all the money they liked and nothing would have actually happened. You know, we wouldn't have... Um, these kind of zombie hotels and ghost estates that are still still have left their mark around the country. You know, you still see you know, and these business parks. You know, somebody called it this strange hotel geography. You know, from the Celtic Tiger that all the stuff went up because there were certain kind of tax breaks and stuff. And it wasn't about the people. You know, it wasn't about amenities and serving the communities. It was it was about people people's profit margins. You know, we did that to ourselves. It's kind of sad. And now you see the current housing crisis and you think, God, have we? We don't seem to have learned. There doesn't we seem to be a learning curve here. No. Exactly, exactly. No. And Crookedwood by Lisa Costello is published by Hachette and is widely available. Stay with us because after the break, we'll be heading to Athlone to the Little Theatre. Encore, in association with the Dean Crow Theatre and Arts Centre Athlone, our bright and airy AIB gallery and cosy theatre bar can cater for smaller private events too. Your theatre, our home, deancrowtheatre.com. Saturday evening in Athlone sees a, an utterly unique event. It is a dramatic reading of Angartha Morbis by Thomas Mylan and the performance will feature Olive Martin, Saoirse Mulvihill, Billy Knott, Pat Canty, Brian Toulon, Joe Steiner and Piper Liam Winnett. It is an unusual title uh, and Gertha Moore we're very familiar with. Uh, Bis or Bis comes from French and it indicates I suppose that it's a secondary telling or a modern retelling or a new telling of the story in the form of this epic poem. Uh, Joe McCarrick is director of the staged reading of the performance. Joe, how did this, which comes to you from France via the US and four generations back of Irish history, how did it fall into your lap? I came across this poem um, through, our, uh, well, to, to put it, the, uh, the writer Thomas Milan, who wrote the poem, came across us. 
he had written this poem uh, from accounts that he had heard from his own uh, relatives growing up and was inspired by, by all he heard and did some research into the uh, famine himself. And that prompted him over time to, to write what he classes as an epic poem on the famine. Now, when he had written it, uh, he wanted he didn't he he wanted to lift it off the page. He he thought maybe somebody might pick it up and do some sort of a production with it. Um, he found his way to me through Tom McGuire, who was the former head of RT Radio One, and he had known me through the drama festival. And he got through to Tom through a circuitous route Mm -hmm. through uh, various contacts in Europe. And one person said to another person who said to another person, oh, well, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. And eventually uh, the poem came to me. And uh, I met Tom for a coffee and he, he gave me the script. I looked at it and I read it and I thought, yeah, this is this is something we could do, but only as an audio production. That, that we could characterize it and divide it into various uh, voices. And using those voices, we could make an audio file for him uh, based, you know, using his words, using his poem, and, and give the file to him. And that was sort of the beginning and end of the project. But uh, Tom Milan, the author, was very excited about it and he wanted to meet with us. And um, after a lot of toing and froing, we eventually agreed a date. Now, this has been going on, I suppose, almost a year at this stage. And with COVID and all sorts of things happening in the meantime, uh, things were put off. But anyway, eventually uh, we got a, a sort of an audio file sent to him. And he really wanted to come over and see us. And we decided, by well, Sherlock, uh, come in June, the summer, the day be bright and long. And when that was arranged and the date was fixed, I thought, well, sir, to hell with it, why don't we just do a staged reading of the poem for him? Let's present it to him live from the stage. And that would sort of uh, give him. Uh, a boost, give him something to look forward to rather than just coming over all the way from France and just uh, meeting us. So that's what, uh, that was the genesis of, of the thing. And um, we're ready to to roll with it now on, on Saturday night at 8 o'clock in the Little Theatre. And as I said, it's a staged reading. It's, it's not a reenactment of the famine. It is not an adaptation of his poem. We're going to be uh, coming out at various stages throughout the poem, reading from the from the script, from the the book, and uh, but we'll be giving it a bit of character. We have six of us on the stage all together, and we come and go at various stages throughout the poem. And, so it's character uh, as opposed to physical performance. Correct. And and correct. tell me, how yeah. well does the does the poem lend itself to that kind of a stage reading, to the audio production, to the to the under Milkwood style of presentation? Because we know, um, yeah. you know, having seen something like uh, Patrick Kavanagh's Great Hunger um, mm-hmm. performed uh, by a single actor in a dramatic kind of a way, it is very possible for poetry to have that dramatic kind of presence and the possibility for interpretation. What about this piece of work? Well, this is the challenge for us. We've never done anything like this before. So uh, it's a world premiere as well on top of that. that Nobody has done this work, uh, Tom Myland's work before. So um, it's it's new territory. And it'd be very interesting to see exactly how it will work. Now, as I said, we'll be reading it 
from uh, from uh, our folders. We will dress in character to a degree. And as I said, it's, it's really more for the vocal than anything else. And it's the, the, the character of the voice. Uh, I would call it uh, written for voice. But we will have images of the salmon projected on a screen behind us. And we will have a live piper who will play at the beginning and at the end of it, sort of it'll create atmosphere. And we hope to uh, that audiences will engage with it. I think that they'll be able to follow it easily enough. It's not very heavy or deep. I mean, it's, it is a story of the famine. It's told from an American-Irish perspective. Uh, there's a lot in it. Uh, it's about 40 minutes running time, 40, 45 minutes roughly. Uh, it goes through the causes of the famine, the reaction of the various um, people, the, 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 the natives, obviously, the farmers who, who, who dug the, the, the potatoes and found them rotten, the, the, the ruling class and how they dealt with it. And, of course, the immigrants and the coffin ships and the people who, who went away and the people who stayed behind. So it, it covers the arc of the famine, I suppose, through, through all of those years. Um, and as I said, you, you, nobody needs any sort of in-depth knowledge or any pre-knowledge uh, to, to, to be able to follow it. I mean, everybody knows that a famine took place. Um, and does Tom uh, Mylan know how lucky he is to have landed on both feet with that lone little theatre, um, not only reading his, his providing an audio production, but a whole performance and presentation, as you said, taking it off the page and giving life to it? Uh, he's very excited. And I have had many conversations with him over the last couple of months. And uh, I, I, he's really looking forward to this. He, he arrived actually in Ireland uh, this morning and he's made his way to that loan. He's, he's booked into, into a hotel tonight for, for the next few days. And I really feel, uh, well, I hope he will be pleasantly surprised with, with what he sees. But uh, he is very excited personally. I, I really don't think uh, he probably, um, in his wildest dreams, imagined this would happen so soon and um, you know these things don't happen very quickly for people but um, I feel he uh, you know we we were very privileged to come to that he found us and that uh, I have a a lovely group of actors Uh, so yeah I think he'll be um, uh, I, I hope he'll be very impressed and pleased but we're very proud and privileged to have as I said, being discovered by him and put our way and to have uh, the opportunity to do this, not just because it's a new piece of work, but uh, it also gives us uh, the opportunity to do something different. It was a challenge. Uh, we read it a lot of times. We, we looked at it. We turned it upside down and inside out and rolled it over a few times. But um, the, the company put their heart and soul into it and have come to the table with a very positive mindset and um, we're, we're really looking forward to getting it out there now. And athlonelittletheatre.ie has all the details. You will need to book, even though entry is free. Eventbrite.ie can also help you out there. And that is it from Encore.
After 8, it is the best of Irish and American country music on Country Roads. I'll be back next Thursday with Encore. And if you like a playlist that tells a story or explores a theme, Beg Meir Ash, Mixtape Nua, either a shacht agus a the clog. The best tunes on the radio anywhere between 7 and 8, every Friday with me and my couple of Till then, take care of yourself. Good night.